I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran, and this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month, Vigilantes. Violent vigilante stories are probably the most problematic thing that I enjoy. It's a genre that doesn't seem to have the same clear-cut definition that science fiction or the Western has. But since the early 1970s, it has spawned countless vigilante movies, novels, and comic books. Now, I wasn't alive for most of the 1970s, but based on the grindhouse cinema and pulp literature of the time, our urban centers were crime-ridden cesspools populated by murderous rapists who set homeless people on fire for fun. In the wake of Watergate, an increasingly unpopular war in Vietnam, and a changing cultural landscape, there was a growing fear in our popular culture that civil authority was either broken, corrupt, or utterly toothless. According to vigilante fiction, the big city was a dystopian war zone full of nothing but dark alleys and porno theaters, where the Constitution frequently protected the rights of vicious criminals over their numerous cowering victims. Into that urban hellscape comes a lone anti-hero to grab that broken city by the throat and propose a series of comprehensive jobs programs, access to health care, <laughs> And affordable housing to give people an opportunity for upward... Nah, I'm just fucking with you. He fixes it with fucking violence. With a gritted-tooth hyper-masculinity, he pumps thousands of rounds of ammunition into drug dealers, low-life scumbags, and murderers with nary a care for Miranda rights or due process. Vigilante fiction created a vision of urban crime so terrible and a legal system so broken that protagonists needed to take violent action outside of the law to find any sort of justice. Arguably, the genre was born in the pulp fiction novels of Don Pendleton, whose lead character, Mac Bolin the Executioner, was a Vietnam veteran who declared a one-man war on organized crime, literally killing hundreds of mobsters over the course of the series. Vigilante films exploded into popularity with 1971's Dirty Harry, where Clint Eastwood played a cop who frequently skirted the law and the civil rights of criminals to catch a bloodthirsty rooftop shooter. Three years later, we saw the debut of Death Wish, which may be the most aggressively right-wing movie I have ever seen not actually directed by Lenny Riefenstahl. Charles Bronson stars as a liberal architect turned merciless killer who patrols the streets and subways at night, gunning down violent criminals as he finds them after a brutal attack on his wife and daughter-in-law. Their success inspired countless copycats, knockoffs, and descendants like The Exterminator, Taken, The Boondock Saints, God Bless America, Harry Brown, Super, The Equalizer, Falling Down, and Hard Candy. The vigilante genre runs the gamut from schlocky action films like Cobra and Hobo with a Shotgun 
to respectable and unnerving deconstructions like Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Even comic books got in on the vigilante game, with the creation of The Punisher in a 1974 issue of Marvel's The Amazing Spider-Man, where the lead character encountered a skull-clad anti-hero. Frank Castle was a killer who wasn't satisfied with simply leaving criminals tied up for the police to arrest. There is something clearly emotionally satisfying and visceral about this genre that resonates with me. But why? Why does a bleeding-heart liberal like me who opposes the death penalty so thoroughly enjoy fiction with such cartoonishly right-wing slants on crime that's ripped straight out of a Willie Horton ad? Why the fuck do I like this stuff, and should I feel guilty for liking it? That question and more is the subject of this episode of Radio vs. the Martians. This month we're talking about vigilantes. So listen up, you fuckers, you screwheads. Here is a man who will not take it anymore. Here is a man who stood up against the scum, the dogs, the filth, the shit. This is a man who stood up. This is our panel. (laughs) (laughs) Returning to the panel, he is a columnist for Comic Book Resources, Comics Should Be Good blog, and a writer of New Pulp at Airship 27. Welcome back to the show, Greg Hatcher. Thanks. And also coming back to the panel, he's a comic book retailer and luchador aficionado. Glad to have you back, Paul Rue. Always good to be back. And finally... The Harry Callahan to my Scorpio killer. The Frank Castle to my Jigsaw. The Charles Bronson to my Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) Mr. Casey Doran. Oh, thank you, Mike. So I want to open this discussion with a bit of cultural context. Like I said, I wasn't there for most of the 1970s. I was busy being a one-celled organism. (laughs) So, uh, Greg, uh, we have a tendency to think of you at the show as our cultural 1970s ambassador. (laughs) That's a fair assessment. The, The vision of crime that we had in these movies is just fucking bonkers. Um, this is the sort of stuff that just blows the mind. This is the vision of urban crime that Mike Huckabee thinks the big city is like. Pretty much. <laughs> so, was there ever a time in real life where crime in urban centers actually looked the way that it does in vigilante stories? Has this always been a cartoon? It's always been a cartoon, but w- the cultural context that you're reaching for doesn't really have a lot to do with urban decay. It has a lot more to do with Vietnam and the the college youth quake that was going on at the time and the the fact of the matter is is that we had a lot of soldiers coming home and those soldiers were being treated very badly and the market for a lot of the the vigilante fiction was kind of a pushback against that it was you don't treat soldiers that way soldiers are heroes soldiers are going to by god take back our country it's there's there's a very fascist is a word that gets thrown around too much but there's a very hardcore conservative right-wing through line running through most of vigilante fiction it's the idea that we used to have something good these fucking hippies broke it i'm going to take them all out and that's the Hmm. that's the engine that's driving a lot of it what i remember about the 70s is how many middle-aged adults, and they were the primary consumers of this stuff. The, they were not 
this was young people were were listening to the Grateful Dead and art rock albums and reading, you know, Carlos Castaneda and stuff like that. They were not the <laughs> they were not absolutely not the target audience. The target audience were angry middle-aged white people. That's something I keep sort of seeing over and over again is the sort of people we see as villains in these movies. There's a lot of long-haired young people. I mean, yeah. the Scorpio killer that we see right. in um the first Dirty Harry movie has a peace sign belt buckle on. You, you mean what Garrick from Deep, Deep Space Nine did before he was a Cardassian uh, saboteur? That was Garrick? Yeah. yeah. Was Garrick. Oh, you don't yes. know that Scorpio was Garrick? <laughs> no. I guess it was the makeup that hit it, but that's fucking great. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. But yeah, I, I keep coming back to that. There's and that sort of angry Archie Bunker kind of vibe to mm. we're going to take this mm-hmm. country back from generally speaking, long-haired young white people and minorities yeah. over uh-huh. and over again. And it is a troubling aspect well, of Well, it. it's, it's you know, there's a certain xenophobia. I mean, it you're you're picking Bolin as kind of the ignition point, and I wouldn't. Mm. I, I think mm. this started with Westerns. Yeah, that was exactly my point. And, my um, you know, and what happened was in the pulp magazines of the 30s it got updated to an urban environment it's kind of comparable to what the bbc did with sherlock and conan mm. doyle's original stories were updated for a a new in, a new environment and that's my feeling is that the vigilante story is basically the western about a guy cleaning up a town but it's updated to an urban hell environment Hmm. Where there actually are things like the Constitution and liberal lawyers who <laughs> I know. think that you shouldn't torture people to get a confession. I know. Exactly. And, yeah. um, you know, the, the, the vigilante story really only works when you throw out anything remotely resembling realism. In real life, vigilantes are like those mopes that took over the bird sanctuary in eastern Oregon or the douches in Texas wearing their machine guns to Walmart and pretending to be cool. That's what it looks like in real life. That's pathetic and sad. No, no. Actually, what it looks like in real life, and I was was reading this yesterday uh, on Wikipedia, what it looks like in real life is Timothy McVeigh. Like, yeah. like it's never it's never someone who's who's uh going to clean up going to save people's purchase, purses from being snatched. It's the people who who break and decide that there's an injustice that they need to bomb people and innocent people die. And innocent people mm. don't really don't die in vigilante movies. That's exactly right. The only way mm. it works is to structure a fantasy world where everything is so horrible. Mm-hmm. And law enforcement is so broken that the only sane response is to go down to your basement, get out your Vietnam War gear, and saddle up. That's that's mm. the only way it works. So, Paul, I what I'm hearing here, and I think it's absolutely true, is a genre that seems steeped in all of the worst stereotypes of my country. <laughs> so, speaking as somebody who's not an American, does this stuff find much purchase in Australia? And are these movies seen as just some weird American cultural export that just shows how bonkers we are? Or is this stuff popular there, too? Oh, God, no. It's hugely popular here. Um, Well, I mean, that's the thing. Uh, Vietnam was kind of the first war that Australia went to as Australia, whereas previously we'd gone in as... uh, into World War I and World War II as adjuncts to the British Army. 
um, because we were part of the Commonwealth, we we went in, you know, there. Whereas in Vietnam, we actually um, Vietnam was the first war we were dragged into by the United States. You're welcome. No worries. <laughs> It's all good. It, there was a big, um, there was a big slogan at the time, "All the way with LBJ," because you know, mm. uh, Lyndon Johnson was, you know, was saying, you know, you need to come and help out, and you need to stop communism and all this. So, um, yeah, a lot of a lot of Australians uh, served in Vietnam, and of course, Vietnam being, you know, so geog- much geographically closer to us, yeah, the whole thing. Um, carry you know the whole cultural effect of that carried over absolutely um and so these books were were hugely hugely popular here um god in some respects you know it's it's an even more uh, sort of fertile uh breeding ground for us because um you know we couldn't see urban cities in the US we couldn't see New York. We couldn't see Los Angeles. So for us, it's kind of like a fantasy world. You know, it, it's, it might as well be a magical place. It's on the other side of the world. But yeah, so for us, it's kind of a fantasy world. For us, you know, New York City might as well be on the moon. So you can paint New York City as weird or as, you know, dystopian as you want. And we'll go, holy crap, you know, <laughs> as long as we're getting the right sort of news footage and, and stuff to confirm that. So I want to kind of get into something I've been really thinking a lot about, which is the appeal of the vigilante genre and why they appeal to people like us. And Mm. clearly we are not a group of people sitting around this table and over Skype who are trying to, quote, make America great again. (laughs) Um, Mm. I think, you know, this may be a bit of a spoiler, but we're all pretty liberal around this counter. and. There's this just reoccurring theme over and over again in vigilante fiction of the Bill of Rights being this impediment to justice, Hmm. that we're supposed to give the hero of these stories a pass on violating the civil rights of bad guys. In Dirty Harry, Harry Callahan illegally enters the bad guy's house, uh, finds uh, he has no warrant. He didn't even try to call a judge. Tracks the guy down to uh, the actual sports arena that he lives in, shoots him in the back while he's running away, and rather than getting him a doctor or a lawyer, steps on the guy's wound and gets a a confession out about where he's hiding this kidnapped girl. And because of that, they have to let that thing go. Now, I'm an ACLU member, (laughs) and in real life, I would easily sign a petition to get Dirty Harry fired. (laughs) I would happily... um, I would happily be against this guy. That guy in real life is something that's popping up in the news a lot lately. But I'm able Mm. to root for him in a fictional context. So I'm really saying, why do people like us who are fairly liberal like stories that skew so cartoonishly to the right well i i to steal uh to steal probably greg hatcher's best line it's because of the fuck yeah moments because the setup mm. of this absurd world of this absurd world that is while the irredeemably wall-to-wall crime darkness and dysfunction um it gives you the the amazing payoff when the bad guys get theirs you know um and uh i have to say that y- you know an assignment for doing a panel like this is something that i would not normally do uh 
I would not. I'm not a big vigilante fiction guy, so I'm the outsider here. I had to go back and like watch the Captain America movies to go in and to like <laughs> recharge my batteries of like this is a good hero, like this is a great hero in fiction. Um, but no, it because it pays off, even though it's fucked up, like it's extraordinarily fucked up. It pays off that like that like it's it's the vigilante movies always got to start off with like a murder or a rape or something atrocious. And then once you're sort of charged up for it, then you're then you can buy all that shit. Then you then you eat it up when uh, when the bad guys get dispatched. Uh, and it's part of like I don't know. It's it's that power of using um, the montage. It's like there's there's always like a kind of like a training montage in vigilante movies that totally work where he he's building up to be a stronger and stronger or getting the urge up to kill. Um, but it's just that it sells that payoff so well because it's so dark, it's so dirty and and full of hate, you know, that you also want to purge it too. Well, well the other thing is that uh, the way that they they build these films is that essentially what happens is you paint the character into a corner. Um, you know, you, you, you emphasize, uh, like recently on TV, um, they showed man on fire, the film with Denzel Washington and, uh, that he's horrific in that. He's terrifying, but, uh, but yeah, they paint his relationship with the, the, the little girl that he's bodyguarding. Um, and they spend a lot of time sort of going, she's very nice. She's a lovely child. He is really dedicated to her. And they really sort of highlight how you know, how, how, how good a person he is and how, you know, wonderful she is and how her parents are and stuff like that. So that when she gets kidnapped, they basically, you know, sort of go like, you know, you're sitting there as you kind of liberal person and going, well, you know, surely this is a job for the police. And then you find out that the cops are corrupt and then you go, Oh, well, surely there's somebody that can handle this. No, nobody can handle it. And essentially it just paints you into this because it's it's a fiction because it can you know control the the absolute parameters of the situation it just wears you down to the point where um you know you go you know maybe the only possible solution to this is that he goes out and sets fire to people and shoves a grenade down somebody's throat and <laughs> tortures guys and, yeah. um and you know we kind of end up playing the role of the disapproving you know, by the book, straight-laced cops in the Dirty Harry film who sort of go, you're out of control, Callahan. But the, villain is, <laughs> the villain is portrayed as so heinous. Everything they do against him is portrayed as so ineffectual um, that eventually, you know, in the end of the film, just as the, the characters in the movie, you know, we sort of come around to going, you know... In the end, you were the only thing that your your evil <laughs> shit was the only thing that worked. <laughs> That's true. I I actually saw Man on Fire again recently. It had been such a long time, and I had forgotten that Denzel Washington had done this movie. And a big part of it is just mm. the terrible fucking things that vigilante characters do to mm-hmm. bad guys. Mm-hmm. And the movies mm. and the stories make these characters so awful. And the control method that you would normally have in a civilized society for stopping these people, so ineffective that there is a moment in this movie, and this is a little bit of a spoiler, but the um, the little girl is actually killed after a botched uh, ex- exchange of, of the ransom. And mm. that's the thing that sets Denzel Washington off on a fucking kill spree. There's a moment where he has to get the this gang leader on the phone with him 
to to talk about you know you know I'm coming for you guys and by the way I have your fucking family hostage he's got the guy's wife mm. and the guy's brother and at one point the guy wants to talk to his brother on the phone Denzel Washington hands the brother the phone and the minute he starts to talk to his brother Denzel Washington blows the other guy's hand off with a shotgun <laughs> there's a scene later when he finally gets the the main gang leader kidnapper um, he's got him duct taped to a car under an overpass. The guy comes to Denzel Washington goes, you know what this is right here? This thing is what drug dealers use to hide drugs in their body. You see what this is? This is a bomb. This is a discharger. This is a transmitter. I put this in you. <laughs> you have five minutes to tell me everything you know. And at the end of that five minutes, he gets, a, gets all that stuff out of him that he needs. And just walks away and lets the guy blow up. That's not Ooh. something Captain America would have ever done to somebody. No. no. That's not the sort of thing Captain America would even threaten somebody with. Right. And Ooh. I think what it kind of comes down to for me is a little thing we like to call schadenfreude. <laughs> right. Ooh. That I think that these movies, the big part of the appeal that's universal that even people like us get into is that Deep down, it doesn't matter how many NPR tote bags you have from giving to various <laughs> pledge drives, there's still a part of you that when you're in a movie theater and some asshole starts talking loudly on his cell phone or someone is just yelling at their wife and being a dick in the supermarket, or you see somebody hit their kid, there's that part of you that just immediately goes to the fantasy where you grab that son of a bitch by the hair, you drag them down the stairs and start beating them with a pipe wrench, and that you're not proud of it, and that your brain is always going to veto that impulse. Right. But you still have that fantasy. I've worked in retail for nearly 20 years, <laughs> and you never grow out of this. You know you're never going to do it, but it's there. And I think what these movies do is play out that fantasy on screen. Right. Here's here's Ooh. my question for, for this is do you think that people and I'm not one of them obviously that people who are actually victims of violent crime do you think they like vigilante movies or is it just people who really have never really experienced any significant crime other than property crime any like person on person crime where someone uses violence on you do you think that uh that vi that victims of crime actually like these movies or just people like us who are generally pretty safe, live in a pretty safe world like these mm. movies. My impression is that victims of real crimes want to see these scenarios play out in real life. Yeah. Um, the Those of us that enjoy them as fiction, and this is this is kind of my answer to what Mike was talking about, I don't, I don't think it's an adult fantasy at all. Yeah. A mm. lot of yeah. us that are squishy English major liberal types were bullied a lot when we were younger. Yeah. Mm. And I hate bullies mm. to this day. I am a school teacher and the few times in my classroom that I have genuinely been angry as opposed to raising my voice as a tactical weapon, but genuinely mm. felt anger towards a kid is when I have seen them behaving as a bully. Mm. And the, the overriding theme of... I'm going to go out on a limb and say there's such a thing as good vigilante movies because I believe that there is. The good, one, the good ones are always about pushback. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, the bad ones are, you know, taking crime as a, 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 an abstract I'm going to fight crime because crime is bad. It's like fighting jealousy. I yeah. Mean, how do you, how <laughs> you, know, do you fight that? No. The, the, the 
good ones are I'm taking out that son of a bitch Salazar because of what he did to my family. Right. And I'm going to make him pay. And the part that's cathartic isn't making him pay. It's when he realizes why. Mm. I made the mistake. Mm. I killed this guy's family two years ago. He's been hunting me. And, oh, man, I fucked up so bad. If only I hadn't pulled the trigger on that poor woman and her baby. So that's the moment. It's usually the point where the bad guy wants to buy him off. It's like, listen, then we can talk this through like business. You know, I'm a professional here. Here, just take all this money. And he's like, I don't want money. Exactly. And we all understand that moment because that's the moment that we always wanted and never got. We wanted the bully to understand what he did. We wanted him to feel bad that's the payoff i and I, well the payoff is good but i also mm. think i'm i i uh i call this the colonel troutman moment where if you may remember colonel troutman is the character from the rambo films that was rambo's commanding officer mm. and in the first movie first blood colonel troutman exists as a as a narrative device to basically be the mm. hype man for how badass rambo is for the whole time you know he's talking with brian dennehy the, the shitbird cop who just is dogging rambo the whole way and he says if you're going to go up on that ridge, you're going to need one thing. And then Dennehy says, what's that? And then Troutman says, a good supply of body bags. You know, like the in Vigilante movies, so that the whole the narrative exists to be like the hype man for like how dangerous and badass the vigilante is going to be. And that's also part when you Ooh. actually get in dialogue, you know, uh, get dialogue to talk him up is that you're getting that anticipation of you being like, not only is there the cathartic like he's actually fucking killing someone but there's also like the oh you know it's gonna come and when people talk about they get they get afraid of him they're like oh i don't know the vigil you know the guy with the pistol is coming he's coming that that character actually exists Mm. in a lot of them the old commanding officer guy uh, shows up in man on fire it's uh what's his name christopher walken who when they question him it's like what's your friend gonna do and he's like you gotta understand some guys are painters (laughs) they use this they create this he's like Mm. crazy his art is death. <laughs> and he's about to paint his masterpiece. He will he will create more justice it's, in a weekend than months of your courts. Well, and, there's there's they're they're serial killers. They are. Like it's a, it's an inverted serial killer yeah. movie is what it is. Well, the the yeah. arc of the there's two different arcs. The the one is the death wish arc where he's a good guy that has to learn to be horrible. Yeah. The other mm. is the, uh, I guess you could call it the Rambo arc, the the retired guy that has to come back to it and be horrible because it's time to be horrible. Yeah. Like the... the mm. Like Gran, my, Gran Torino my, is another one of those. The world yeah. just yeah. won't let mm. me be a farmer. Yeah. Actually, my, my very <laughs> favorite one of these is John Wick. Oh, oh yeah. John Wick mm. is like my favorite template for that because John Wick is one that you can take a girl to. <laughs> my wife, my mm. wife, Julie, who is, she's probably the sweetest non-aggressive person you would ever meet ever in the Western Hemisphere. And the first time I was watching John Wick, she came home, it was about halfway through it, and she's just like rolling her eyes like, oh, God, here we go again, another shoot em up And I said, no, really, you, you have to see it from the beginning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. And and yeah. and so because she loves me, she agreed to see it from the beginning, and I rewound it, and 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 she was so moved by the early scenes with his wife, and and then when the mobster kills the dog, my wife Julie, the sweet one, everybody who knows us says Julie's the nice one. Julie leans forward and says. Oh, he better get that guy. <laughs> that's the power of, you know, when you set it up right, that's what you want. 
Hmm. You don't care that he's violating <laughs> every every civil right ever established anywhere in any culture by anybody because he better get that guy. Yeah. That's the God, part God that's damn important. Theon Greyjoy. I know. Son of a bitch. So they are <laughs> going to make a sequel to John Wick. I'm a little bit nervous about that. Yeah. I don't. I know. It's, Is it going to be another Game of Thrones villain who kills like <laughs> yes. his kitten or something this time? <laughs> I do, that's the my problem with it is that John Wick exists. There are some of these that should just be one-offs. Yeah. They should just yeah. be mm. alone. John Wick is almost yep. my perfect vigilante movie. And mm. I don't want a second one. Mm. It's like Exorcist mm. 2 or something. You know, the, the Exorcist was a great one-off piece of horror film that had a, it had a beautiful arc. The ending with Karis was just, it was, in terms of plotting and structure, it was just a brilliant piece. And it's like, you don't, if you have a second one, you negate everything that's good about the first one. You know, looking back on it now, yeah. uh, this does not have to do with vigilantes. I was thinking, if we never had any sequel to the Alien movie, mm-hmm. it probably would stand as a better movie than it was. I, I think it, yeah. I think mm, that the cause, sequels... Because the sequels needed to do something totally different with it because he needed to make the alien threat bigger and and it only needed to be the threat of a monster movie at the beginning. Yeah, but I, think, I know what you're, it's, I feel the same way. But John, John Wick, though, it's that same thing. So let's mm. just say a simple rule: no sequels unless James Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more vigilantes. Allegedly, soccer is a beautiful game. It is when you know what's going on. That's the problem. MLS is 20 years old, and people are still shocked to hear that there's an American soccer league. That's why you and I are talking about it. This is a discussion of American soccer for nerds and beginners. It's a good first step if a crippling soccer addiction is something that's missing from your life. Join the club. Celebrate the 20th anniversary of MLS by actually following the season. Hands-Free Football. New episodes every week at handsfreefootball.com. And we are back on Radio versus the Martians. This month we are talking about violent vigilante stories. and As uh, opposed to pacifistic vigilantes. Yeah, they go out there and shake their finger at people. <laughs> you, you take that crime, you shit. Actually, you, I have a candidate for that. I you sent do. Mike a clip for this for his birthday. Billy Jack oh. is the squishy liberal Captain Planet of vigilante no. fiction. It is, yeah. There actually are quite a few... Uh, vigilante movies that are not overtly right wing and it's a right. really weird place have you guys uh, ever seen a movie called god bless america yes god bless america is essentially the angry thing inside of your head that liberals have but never let out thankfully <laughs> um oh geez but maybe people would take us more seriously if we did <laughs> um basically this was the liberal equivalent of death wish that it was yep. the the angry liberal guy who just wouldn't take it anymore. Joel Murray, who's Bill Murray's brother, plays this guy named Frank who has an inoperable brain tumor. And when he's going to kill himself, he's like kill he's got the gun in his mouth in front of a TV set and he just sees all of the stupid goddamn culture. He sees things like Glenn Beck the equivalent in the show, of course. They're not going to actually show Glenn Beck footage and get sued. Uh, the Bill O'Reilly's of the world, uh, preachers saying God hates fags, those people. He sees... Um, th- and finally, the thing that makes him take the gun out of his mouth is this reality show about a spoiled rich girl who, on her birthday, 
gets the wrong like hundred thousand dollar car, and she starts screaming about her parents ruined everything. I fucking hate you and throws things, and he just goes, no, <laughs> <laughs> and he decides that he's gonna do something in the world, and he kills that girl, and then he kills her parents. <laughs> And then he he teams up with a really unstable teenage girl, and they start killing the Westboro Baptist Church. They kill Glenn Beck. They kill Bill O'Reilly. They kill Tea Party activists, reality TV show stars, and all of the things that the blue states can't stand. All the people who and that's the thing he does is it isn't that he wants to kill people that are dumb. He specifically wants to kill people who just can't be nice. People who mm. are just cruel, people who are bullies, people who you just can't be nice to people that they have to try to we, we lionize people on reality show for for picking on the weak. And he's like, fuck those people. Those people deserve to die. And it's the real contention between him and his teenage sidekick who wants to kill people that are stupid. People who like she wants to kill the Kardashians and stuff. He's like, no, I want to kill people that deserve to die. <laughs> and the trailer has I'm a wonderful, terrible person for laughing. And at yeah, he says he's like, and there's a line in the movie. He says like, you know, it's not normal to want to kill, but I am no longer a normal person. And why do we even pretend to have a civilization and we're not interested in being civilized? So it's a guy who kills because people won't be nice. Mm. And and it's directed by none other than Bobcat Goldthwait. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Which just let that explode in your brain for a minute. So I don't think that the violent vigilante film is necessarily right wing, but it's pretty overwhelmingly right wing. Mm. I mean, it 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 uh, it, it definitely uh, has to play to a mind um, that says that that the the entirety of this of the safety net of the good that is left in the world means nothing next to one person's person you know one person's agenda one one's gripe your your beef mm. with the world and right? that's what's great about Joel Murray's character is in this movie in God bless America he doesn't go out of his way to find people to shoot it just the possibilities just present themselves to him <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it, it strikes me that it's still playing by the rules yeah the uh, mm. I mean these kinds of stories have a, a set specific list of tropes and rules that if you if you don't play by them you're just going to blow up the whole thing yeah mm. um there's i mean there's really serious or allegedly serious explorations of things like taxi driver i think is a serious movie i think yep. falling down is a serious yeah. movie i don't yeah. i don't know that i would even count those as being full-on vigilante movies those are those are serious movies that are playing with tropes uh, i'd say but v- taxi, driver. taxi driver is a vigilante movie but um, it's, it's close it's close to being in the real quote real world unquote because the vigilante scenario was really playing out in his head only well it's the world that he sees not the world that everyone else sees but I, yeah the but here's my thing. I have always felt that one of the rules of the genre is that being the world has to be built in such a way that vigilante behavior makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, it's like Batman is Batman because Gotham City needs a Batman. Right. You can't have mm-hmm. Batman without Gotham City is just a loon in a costume. Mm-hmm. Batman mm-hmm. in Gotham City is a rational response. That's I think that's yeah. one of the rules. The environment has to justify the behavior. 
And yeah, I was thinking about this with Taxi Driver too. Is I think that it may be a response to things like Dirty Harry and Death Wish because it came out in '76. Yeah. I know the Death Wish came out '74, '71 for Dirty Harry, and mm. I think what it did is it had a vigilante film where it was not aspirational. That this was an unstable, isolated, socially awkward guy who is scribbling scary stuff in his journals and that he gets dumped and takes a girl on a scary date to a porno theater <laughs> because he's that that more fucked up and separate from everyone else that he doesn't have that ability to socialize normally with people. And when she won't get, return his phone calls, that's the point where first he tries to assassinate the presidential candidate she's volunteering for. Uh-huh. And only after that fails does he decide to take out the pimps who have like a teenage prostitute. Yeah, but to me, that's mm. that's not Mac Bullen. That's like John Hinckley and his crush on Jodie Foster. Yeah, that's, that's you're right. You're it right. is. You're that's right. completely literally yeah. Jodie Foster again. But literally yeah. not the <laughs> the. I think if you're going to talk about the vigilante genre, you have to buy into the fantasy aspect of it. And and if your movie is saying literally this is a demented fantasy, yeah, well, then you're stepping away from the genre. I mean, I, I mean, I, I also, I mean, I just, I sort of said, well, he's creating a world in his head where in a, a, a bubble of a world, Travis Bickle lives in the larger part of the real world where he's filtering out everything with that as redemptive and he's only sort of focusing on the things that he thinks he needs to destroy. Um, but you have the things like Martin Scorsese making his cameo in that movie being the guy who uh, is talking about killing his cheating wife, you know. So um, I, I, I legitimately do think that it's it's the same type of world. And it, it made me, that and Death Wish made me uh, think that if I ever could time travel, I'm never going to go back to New York City in the 70s. <laughs> it seems like a scary place to be. I, I guess that's why I think of it as a, a response movie, because it says, well, let's take out the fantasy elements and yeah. let's show how unhinged somebody who acted like this would actually be. The other thing with um, a taxi driver is not necessarily so much looking at Travis Bickle, but looking at the the people who hear about him and go, "Oh, he's a hero! Right. He's awesome!" Right. Um, which is very similar to the uh, um, the the attention surrounding Bernie Getz in the nineteen eighties. Hmm. Um, you know where where the newspapers tried to turn him into this fictional hero. They tried to turn him into Mac Bolan or or uh, Remo Williams or any of those other guys, um, you know. And, and I think that's that's where Taxi Driver intersects with the vigilante uh, genre is the fact that he sees himself in those terms. And at the end of the film, the people, uh, the media, try to spin him in those terms. That's kind of a weird one. I know there's some dispute about that. Some people like to think that everything after him getting shot and being found by the cops is a dream sequence mm-hmm. where he's a hero. And, of course, the woman that he scared the shit out of is saying, like, oh, I read about you in the paper and has, like, a, a pleasant exchange with him in the back of a cab where yeah. I would think that you see this guy, you want a date, and you find out he's a psychopath, and then you find out he shot up a bunch of pimps, that you would see him in the cab and you'd run the fuck away. So it feels a bit like a fantasy. So I don't know. I know there's some dispute about that. But the movie does seem to kind of let him get away with it, where it kind of makes him a hero at the end, rather than somebody who finally snapped. But uh, speaking about the the vigilante character and taking them out of that that fantasy realm, Greg, that you've talked about, that world that they need to exist in to rationalize their actions, but also to create a world where what they're doing is okay and, in fact, laudable, 
I want to talk a little bit about the Punisher because I think the mm. Punisher is a character that exists in a world that isn't a vigilante world, though he's a Mac Boland character, but he's in a superhero genre. And I think the thing with the Punisher is that he's a pretty straightforward vigilante hero or anti-hero, I guess you could say. But the superhero genre, the world that he exists in, it's it's pretty unique against other action genres. That in almost every action genre in the world, it doesn't matter if it's Star Trek, it doesn't matter if it's Star Wars, uh, it doesn't matter if it's an old school Western with a stalwart, upright hero like Gary Cooper, people kill bad guys in movies mm. and in books and in plays. Luke Skywalker kills a lot of stormtroopers um, in the Star Wars movies, even in the first one where he's just a farm boy, and he doesn't feel bad about it afterwards. He just shoots him. The minute laser hits plastic armor, they are dead. <laughs> it's not like we're getting the sort of you know death wish kills where somebody staggers away gut shot before he finishes them off. It's pretty, I shoot you, you die. Captain Kirk kills people. Um, James Bond kills people. So why is it that the superhero genre is so different where there's a a mentality, there's an ethos that you never kill the bad guy ever? And that's the world that we put the Punisher in. And I worry a little bit that the Punisher might be the scrappy-doo of the Marvel Universe. Mm. And the Mm. explanation I'm going to give of that that, uh, analogy is that in Scooby-Doo... The bad guy is always just a guy in a costume. It's just an old guy running a haunted amusement park that's trying to scam somebody with money or scare somebody off of land. And But when they first encounter him, all of the heroes run away from the monster. It's a big part of the trope. Mm. They have the musical chase sequence. But when they added Scrappy-Doo in later seasons, Scrappy breaks the genre, which is that he asks the question that while enjoying it, you're not supposed to ask, which is, why don't we just tackle this motherfucker <laughs> and pull his mask off now? And I wonder if Mm. the Punisher does that for the Marvel Universe, that we don't question in a superhero story why a hero never kills. We don't ask, we don't blame Batman for all of the people that the Joker kills when he breaks out of Arkham Asylum. And he's going to kill hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. He locks him up, refuses to kill him in several stories, and it just repeats itself because we want more Joker stories. Mm -hmm. So... Mm. Well, there's an answer to your question, um, mm. the and it's rooted in the the context in which the Punisher was created, which was the 1970s. Seventies um, mm. Marvel, the comics were mostly being written by squishy hippie liberals, and the Punisher was created as a villain for Spider-Man, who yeah. is constantly plagued with self doubt and insecurity and wondering if he's right and wondering what the right thing to do is. And at the same time, the spinner racks next to the comic books were Bolin and the Destroyer and, and all these guys were blowing up the sales. And I'm sure that at some point somebody said, hey, you know who'd make a good Spider-Man villain is a guy like Mac Bolin. And there's the Punisher. Mm. The part where the Punisher became a hit happened in the 80s. Mm. And it happened Mm. when guys like Mike Barron and Frank Miller and all these more right-leaning writers came in. And it's like, why the fuck are you even worrying about the rightness of it? He's the Punisher. He's Frank Castle. Of course he kills people. Duh! They're bad Mm. people. It It wasn't so much that the character changed, it's that the culture changed around him. I can see that, but that's something you also you brought up I think is really important is you mentioned that Spider-Man's a character who is plagued by doubt. The Punisher mm. has absolute certainty about what he is doing. 
and has no time for tying them up and leaving them for the cops. That he does not question his actions for a second. And he's a character that comes from a genre where you don't question those actions for a second. And the equivalent of people like Spider-Man who complain about the stuff he says are always portrayed as ineffectual. They're always trying to tie your hands and they're always trying to coddle bad guys. So you, I wonder, though, with the Scrappy-Doo thing is, does the Punisher being there bringing up these questions and arguments with Spider-Man and Daredevil, does it point out a weakness in the superhero genre? Probably. But the trouble is a lot of the people that were writing those stories were trying to elevate superhero comics away from young people. And we were talking about this earlier with uh, like Batman v Superman and other things like that, where you're, there's a kind of fan turned creator that wants to drag this childhood thing along with them into adulthood. And I Mm. think that's where a lot of these Punisher versus the Avengers kinds of stories come from. That's the Punisher doesn't work when you throw him up against super people. That's a, that's a misuse of his character. That's, that's the, Marvel film people understand this and they've been very careful about isolating the television versions of Jessica Jones and Daredevil and and so on from the wider Marvel universe. They name check it, but that's it. Yeah, I mean, what is it in the Punisher run that starts in 87? You don't actually see him interact with the superhero until well into like the the teens, I think, which is where he has a couple episodes with Daredevil. And they do that sort of dance where it's all about, um, you know, Daredevil is like, I'm going to bring you in to uh, bring, you know, I'm going to bring this criminal into the justice system. And Punisher says, you know, why are you going to do that? They're just going to let him go, you know. Yeah. And the Punisher's being the Captain America in this instance, right? He's saying, or rather the Daredevil's being the Captain America. He's saying he deserves, in our system, he deserves due process. Um, but, I mean, it ends in sort of a stalemate, right? Because Daredevil never catches the Punisher, and Punisher is not going to kill Daredevil. Yeah. They're just going to fight, punch the shit out of each other on a rooftop and let the bad guy get away. You but know? that's the, the part I kind of wonder about, because to have stories where you continually fight one villain time after time means they have to inevitably break out of prison or escape in some way. Mm -hmm. And in real life, jailbreaks don't happen that often. (laughs) We we just had a mental patient escape from an asylum, a violent one, in Washington State recently, and he was just caught within days. Uh, That doesn't happen very often. But in Gotham City, Mm. that's called Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) And I would say that if I lived in the DC or Marvel universes, I'd probably be pro-death penalty. Because even hmm. death doesn't stick in these comic books. <laughs> I mean, it basically is just a way of putting you into remission for a couple of years until a writer comes up with a really cool story for you. Uh, I, you know, I, I, uh, I went back and I was, I got the, the essential Punisher as recommended by Greg Hatcher. Of course, Greg has the best recommendations Ooh. ever, second only to Mike. Um, <laughs> I remembered that that my brother had a couple issues of those of those Punishers when they came out in the in the late eighties. I think that the one thing that the Punisher does, even though you, there might be some dissonance, right, with where the universe that Punisher lives there, I think that Punisher um, is trying to scratch the itch of that fuck yeah commando Chuck Norris sort of audience um, that mm. that it doesn't just appeal to thirty somethings that vigilante movies do. That obviously appeals to preteen boys. Yeah, because you know I mm. I loved Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and Van Damme movies before I even understood like. 
due process or you know innocent until proven mm. guilty i you everyone loves to see people get the you know bad guys get the fucking bullet you know yeah so and, but i wonder trying to scratch that itch yeah i get it there which is almost why you almost have to separate him from the marvel universe and i know yeah. writers like garth ennis and jason aaron have basically pulled him into his own little pocket universe for the past 10 years mm. and maybe that's the best place for him where he's not i mean it's fun to see him argue with daredevil and stuff but the hard part is i want daredevil to be right but i find myself agreeing with the punisher <laughs> it's like you know that motherfucker's just gonna break out again because he's in a fictional universe and people of course are gonna want to use bullseye again <laughs> and of course to show mm. that he's a badass he's gonna kill like 10 people so yeah fucking shoot him he even has a bullet hole like bullseye on his costume he's got two places where he would kill him and it would look really cool actually that's not as bad as the dc situation with batman and commissioner gordon it is amazing to me that the joker's never been quote shot while escaping custody yeah yeah how did that never happen the joker is not super powered he's not he's not even armored he's basically mm. super dumber yeah I mean, he yeah. goes around mm. doing horrible i mean gacy wishes he could be the joker and to escape mm. that many times and kill that many people he probably has multiple commas in his death count in comics since the 1940s where he was invented and it's just which is you know again the real problem is that the the impetus to try and make these things palatable to adults and that's mm. a bad idea. It's really a bad idea. <laughs> the mm. Batman works best when he his world is not realistic, when it's just sort mm. of this the best expression I ever heard. Gerard Jones used it in his book, The Great Comic Book Heroes. He called it a noir carnival of fright and insanity. <laughs> <laughs> that's Batman's world. That's that's Batman exists to make that world at least a place where normal people can live normally. Mm. And that makes sense. That that fills the the environmental requirement of a vigilante story. But if you're, you know, some snooty art art school type and I went to school with one of these many of these guys, I was one of these guys. I understand <laughs> where this impulse comes from and it's coming from this defensive place where you're ashamed of being a fan of the stuff, so you try to make it sort of artistic and and quote realistic and quote adult and really what you end up being is the 14 year old shouting at your English teacher that you really should be allowed to write your thesis about Batman <laughs> you should <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna fight that battle right now <laughs> it's real art you take it goddamn seriously he's gonna be dark and angry and he's never gonna smile ever <laughs> Oh, it's you know you can't poke these things with a stick like that because they fall apart. So I've got a point to make here, which was when I was when you were sort of laying uh, an alternate take to his backdrop, where you're saying, you know, there were the long-haired hippie kids who had just come out of the '60s who had done this whole take of we're going to start a revolution, and there basically was a failed revolution on the part of the the kids from the '60s, and then there are it's the the culture clash of the. Vietnam vets who are coming back and seeing what they've rotated back into, right? Um, the Death Wish uh, scenario uh, with Charles Bronson kind of has a scintillating fusion between these two, right? Because uh, Charles Bronson's character starts a, basically a vigilante revolution in New York City where, like, the old ladies are starting to, like, hit back against the purse snatchers, you know? Yeah. 
And here's the question. Um, in vigilante movies, do vigilantes actually want to start a revolution where everyone becomes a vigilante themselves? Or do they just want to have a complete monopoly on being the vigilante? Well, they got that in Dark Knight Returns. We talked about this a bit during our right, Batman panel, right. where there was this sense of just angrily shaming anyone who wasn't willing to leave their house with a baseball bat and beat up muggers, <laughs> go looking for mm. them, that it's you weak people who won't get your hands dirty, and by dirty I mean up to the elbows in blood. <laughs> You're the reason that this country isn't great anymore, as if there was ever a time where we were just mobs. <laughs> But, yeah, I, I kind of want to close this, this conversation out with, again, the elephant in the room that I don't think any of us have ignored during this conversation, and that's mm. the problematic elements of vigilante fiction. Mm-hmm. There is always... I, well, there's a there's a thing there with... with I, I think we're talking about, like, students versus uh, veterans, and I think that's part of it. That's a big part of it in the 70s. But I think it's a, it's a bigger thing than that. I think that's an element, but I think that... Vigilante fiction becomes popular in moments of social upheaval. Um, the pulp stuff, the spider and the shadow and um, Nick Carter even, um, and all those guys came out of the, the depression when you had people going, none of this shit makes sense anymore. The world is just crazy and it's there's, there's these giant forces that are smashing my head into the ground. And then you look at the 70s and in the 70s you had the, the, the rise of terrorism, you had the, the oil crisis, you had uh, you know, people yelling about pollution, people yelling about this, that. You had Vietnam, you had all of these elements. Um, you had the, 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 the growth of women's liberation, the growth of civil rights movement, blah, black power all of this sort of thing. And suddenly there was a whole bunch of people who said, I don't understand this shit anymore. (laughs) This is confusing to me. Could you make this simple for me? And I think that's what the vigilante is all about. The vigilante basically, you know, sort of looks at the world and says, and everybody's going, this is too complex. And it's like, it's not complex. It's simple. You find the bad guy, you shoot him in the fucking head. Yeah. (laughs) That's it. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, there's a line in Dirty Harry where um, they ask... Harry, Harry Callahan, why he shot this guy in the back. And I actually wrote this quote down. He's like, yeah, well, when an adult male is chasing a female with intent to commit rape, I should shoot the bastard. That's my policy. <laughs> <laughs> it's Yeah, it keeps it nice and simple. That guy's bad. This gun shoots things. I shoot the thing at the bad man. But I guess that's what I'm talking about, that, that weird Archie Bunker paranoia that mm. the world is becoming a thing that it wasn't when I was a kid and I was comfortable with it. Forgetting the fact that there's all these people that weren't comfortable in the world that right. you were comfortable in. Right. And there's this distrust of young people and minorities and criminals' rights being respected too much. Every prison argument we ever have about, oh my god, they even let them go to college beyond jar bars. Why aren't they breaking rocks? And that's what I just keep seeing, and the thing that keeps popping into the back of my head and I enjoy this genre a lot, and I get the same kind of like, yeah, fucking kill that guy Harry Callahan, kill that guy Paul Kiersey, and then in the back of my head there's this little seed and it sprouts and it's hard for me to hold it back from growing and growing. And that little seed is George Zimmerman. George yeah. Zimmerman, the overzealous neighborhood watch volunteer who killed an unarmed black teenager in 2012. 
the mm. guy who probably saw himself as Charles Bronson in Death Wish, this guy holding back the tide of the what? scum and the crime. They, they always get away with it. Right? They do. Is that, and, isn't that what he said? They always get away with it. Yeah, they yeah. always mm. get away with it. I yeah. mean, these practically written right out of Rorschach's journal that somebody mm. has to do something about, quote-unquote, them. So I guess the last question I want to ask you guys is, does this get in the way of you guys enjoying it? Does it? Is it like a little buzz in the back of your head, or does it make enjoying stories like Mac Bolin or The Punisher or John Wick, does it make it harder to, to like it, to get a little harder to get that visceral punch when you know that in real life it's a fucking atrocity? I, I don't know. I mean, I think about... Uh, I, I have a I have an enjoyment of the Hannibal Universe movies, even though the idea of a real life serial killer and maybe like even rooting for a serial killer, as you kind of are in some parts of that trilogy, um, is completely anathema to my worldview. I think yes, I can still enjoy them despite the Timothy McVeighs or the George Zimmermans of the world, uh, because for all the reasons we've said before, is that a vigilante movie establishes a universe wherein it's safe. Uh, to be rooting for what's the what is incredibly ugly, what is just distressingly ugly, um, and it's mm. it's pure escapism, it's total total escapism, and I do worry about the aspirational wannabe Rorschachs. I certainly do worry about them, mm. um, but I just I I think that. I think that in the same way that uh, first-person shooters don't create uh, trench coat-wearing school shooters, I also don't really think that vigilante movies create, uh, you know, uh, Harry Callahan-style vigilantes. I just don't think they do. I would even expand on that a little bit. The uh, overriding characteristic of most of these guys is that they're very poorly educated and often borderline illiterate. Those of us that enjoy fiction tend to be literate. We tend to understand the difference between fiction and real life. We're not, you know, tottering on the edge where any particular piece of propaganda is going to push us over. So that's my that's my first answer is, yes, I have completely the ability to enjoy this stuff with a clear conscience because i can tell the difference between me and george zimmerman Mm -hmm. but uh, but more to the point i think that the those of us that are able to feed our fantasies by leaping into a fictional universe every once in a while where that things are very simple and there's good guys and bad guys and bullies get what's coming to them without a lot of pesky you know due process and courtroom hearings and depositions and crap have that need filled so we don't need to go out hunting stray black children in the dead of night with our gun that makes us Mm. feel powerful because we understand fiction and we're able to feed our fantasy that way i think Mm. that all of us have that reptile part of our brain that wants things to be simple that wants to hurt people back that hurt us that you know the most of us that are adults find ways to cope with those impulses without arming ourselves and patrolling the neighborhood Mm. in the hope that some kid in a hoodie is going to come by so that's kind of my answer to your question is Mm. sure i understand i'm i'm totally okay with it i write the stuff (laughs) i'm totally fine with it right but because i understand what it's for and how it works when you were making the the whole, you know, does the vigilante fiction cause the, the real life violence? I I think if you look at it the other way around, I think if you sort of go, does this societal confusion 
I think it's sim- it's a symptom rather than a cause. I think when you have a society that you know is is full of people who are confused, then I think that what's going to happen is the entertainment is going to reflect a need for simple solutions. Um, hmm. And I mean, as Mike said earlier, you know, I get frustrated by all sorts of stuff. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world, which is frustrating. And there is a lot of visceral joy to be had in just enjoying something where in that world, in that context with those characters, there is a very simple solution to what could be a very complex issue. Um, so yeah, from that point of view, I can really enjoy the, 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 the visceral reaction to, you know, just going, Oh, you know, at least, at least this isn't causing me to, you know, have these internal conflicts and questions. You know, I'll watch the news and I'll sit there and be going, oh, you know, what? How do I feel about this? Why? You know, it's like, no, this tells you how to feel about it. This tells you why. This tells you. Uh, and that's, that's kind of enjoyable. And, you know, being as I am, the, the, the kind of media analyzing you know, geezer that I am, I'll turn it over in my head and, and, and all that sort of thing and, and, and analyze it and, you know, read things resistantly as they say. But, hmm. uh, you know, there is a comfort to that, you know? Um, and I think that, you know, there'll always be, a, a, an outlet for, for people who just sort of go, look, I just want something that's gonna, that's gonna just let my brain slow down for a bit and and stop churning. <laughs> and part nice. of it also, just to, not to keep banging on this, but mm. pop culture is a mirror. Paul's right. Pop mm. culture is a mirror. In the 50s, science fiction was all about radiation and big bug movies and the apocalypse and the threat of the bomb. And mm. today there's a lot of fiction about zombies and and neighbors losing their identity and fear of the other and your your normal person that you live next to suddenly turning on you um these this is where our anxieties are and i think Mm. vigilante fiction paul really makes a good point here vigilante fiction often serves to placate those anxieties at the same time validating them by saying yes Mm. urban centers are hell you are right to be frightened to go downtown and then saying but it's okay because there's a big guy with a gun that's going to take care of all those people so it's safe for you to ride the subway yeah Mm. i can i can see that i think it's a the violent video game thing i kill digitized people so i never have to kill real ones real ones (laughs) i fight them over there so i don't have to fight them here (laughs) so uh with that i think let's take a break and we'll be right back with high point low point who here likes comic books who likes superheroes Who likes superhero comic books? From the 90s! That's what I thought. Hey there, I'm Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks. And though I've always loved superheroes, the only time I was buying monthly issues was during the much maligned 1990s. I've decided to go through my personal collection, issue by issue, and in my own little way... Try to answer the question, were 90s comics really that bad? Chances are the answer will be yes, but I think these books deserve another chance, and they're going to get it. 
on 90s Comics Retrial, part of the Council of Geeks podcast, available on iTunes and at 90scomicsretrial.wordpress.com. And we are back in Radio versus the Martians. We are talking vigilantes this month. It's time for our segment we like to call High Point, Low Point, where we go to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel. Paul, I want to open up with you. What is the low point of vigilante fiction? Oh, God. It's really hard. To, uh, there's been a lot of uh, vigilante. I've read a lot of this stuff over the years, and, and a lot of it, when it's at its low ebb, is pretty much unreadable. Um, it's really hard to sort of pinpoint any one because a lot of the unreadable stuff is just incredibly forgettable. But to me, when it gets unreadable is when it has no sense of humor about itself, no joy about it, no sort of... It doesn't even have any sort of shred of self-awareness. Um, there have been a couple where it's just been really obvious that the guy writing it has been one of those genuinely terrifying people that should probably <laughs> be, you know, have an eye kept on them for um, for the benefit of of themselves and of society as a whole. Oh, you're talking about um, John, John Milius then. <laughs> <laughs> See, I was going to say Barry Blair, yeah. but you know, that just dates me. Mm. Yeah. Um, while there's a lot of rubbish, a lot of it tends to be forgettable rather than actively. I mean, while st stuff is objectionable, it doesn't take itself seriously enough or it's impossible to take it seriously enough for you to go, Hey, this is an actual. This is a, a real call to action. As I say, in a, in a in a genre that's so replete with with absolute shit, it's very hard to pick um, any particular awful element. Well, I think that's enough of a low point as it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> forgettable is is huge. Uh, my low point, um, we you kind of treaded to the same ground with my low point. Mm. See, I didn't have any one particular, uh, any one particular like example. Uh, mine is the lib the liberal shaming. Um, so it's sort of a necessary element yeah. to some of these vigilante stories. And I know that it's probably tongue in cheek in a lot of these times because a lot of these writers themselves are probably hippies and liberals or fellow travelers like I am. <laughs> um, but I mean. Sometimes it tweaks me a little bit when you have the Rorschach, you know, it's the liberals and intellectuals that don't understand the real world, and they're the problem, you know, like that that thing. But the problem isn't actually crime, uh, but it's the it's the it's the fault of the liberals who are too soft, you know. And I'm not a sociologist, mm. mind you. I don't understand the origin of urban crime, but I'm pretty sure that it owes more to poverty and disenfranchisement and racism than it does to like any partisan beef because crime pretty much occurs on both sides watch both conservative and liberal right mm. so one of them can't solely be responsible for it um and it's not like i can't handle like a critique of liberalism right like my, you and i do that all the time mike <laughs> we're constantly bagging on them but it's just it's a stereotype 
And this is one of the things that that gets me is it's just anti-intellectualism. Mm-hmm. Is this part of the the whole thing that someone who feels with their gut of what's right or wrong versus someone who might actually have read a book or experienced something? Um, and I worry that it sort of plays into the misdirected fandom part. Um, you know, stokes the flame for those aspirational vigilantes. Yeah, I, I don't at, like that. I don't like that. I look at the beginning of Death Wish, and we were talking about that uh, Paul Kersey, Charles Bronson character arc, Greg before. And at the beginning, they treat the fact that Charles Bronson's character is a liberal who thinks that there may be a poverty or disenfranchisement aspect to crime as if it's like a learning disability. His compassion for people is treated like a flaw that he needs to overcome. And Mm. even one of his coworkers says something like, they ought to throw all those people in concentration camps. And I'm still not sure that the movie is disagreeing with that guy. (laughs) So... um, Apparently, the the book, the original book upon which Death Wish was based, was a lot more nuanced, questioning, a, a <laughs> lot less open and shut hmm. um, about pretty... that whole thing, and it was very much. Uh, it was, was, was anti vigilante. I I will even yeah. footnote that the author of the book, Brian Garfield, was so horrified by the way Death mm. Wish was taken as an aspirational movie and spawned all these imitations and three more sequels that he wrote an actual sequel called Death Sentence where he made it very clear mm. that the Paul Kersey character was not aspirational that hmm. he was in fact destroyed mm. by this event in his life mm-hmm. and he was spiraling into a very dark and terrible place in- mm. instead of becoming a Batman as he does in the movie theaters yeah, and just moves the, to a different mm. city and fucks shit up even more my job is done here. <laughs> Which, so, Greg, what is your low point for vigilantes? Well, oddly enough, um, it is the the misdirected fandom that we're talking about. Mm. The the the, yeah. the impetus to create a Death Wish two and a Death Wish three and a Death Wish four, the crackdown and and blah 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 and all these. The there was a real wave of these things, and it's and it's kind of what happens whenever something cool becomes popular. There's a there's a saying in Hollywood that nobody wants to be first, but everybody wants to be second. Yeah, you know, and that's Ooh. that's kind of what happened with the vigilante wave of not just the the movies, but also the paperbacks with Mac Bowen. Suddenly, there was the Liquidator and the Penetrator and the Destroyer and the this the Death Merchant. Mm, the Penetrator. And, that's not something I can get into. I know. It's uh, <laughs> could it be any more on the nose? Um, and, you get it, and folks. The, Gun equals penis. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I do have great affection for some of the weirder offshoots of that, like Joe Haldeman under a pen name created an underwater vigilante called Atar the Merman. Oh. <laughs> And, uh, and the then he wrote Forever War. Yeah, he's a great author. I know, and that was his first thing was Adar the the Merman. You know, they they were trying to. There were all these ways to try and jumpstart something that was like Bolin but different. And there's mm. and and the weird ones I have tremendous affection for, you know, because there's there's Adar who's you know he's Bolin but he's underwater yeah. and he talks to dolphins <laughs> and you know there was one called Overload that was about truckers and it's like it's like Bolin but they're truckers and there's two of them they drive around in the Southwest and kill Satanists and terrorists because yes. you know oh. there's oh, a lot of Muslim terror that sounds wonderful. I, I know. What if the trucker one is the other side of the movie Duel? <laughs> <laughs> 
What if, what if this is just a misunderstanding and he read a license plate wrong and so, he's just harassing the main character? So, you know, when when they get really weird, I sort of enjoy them, but you but I don't confuse them with the good stuff. And there were a lot of just really bad vigilante pieces that spoke to just the worst part of people, the Death Wish sequels, especially the third and fourth one. Oh, yeah. Um, the uh, There was one I, I reviewed this morning just to see if it was really as horrible as I remembered. It was The Exterminator with mm. Robert Ginty. Mm-hmm. And uh, first mm. of all, Robert Ginty is in no way a Bronson-esque action hero. He was one of the the fellow students on the paper chase with James Stevens. He was the redheaded one that only lasted the first season because he, you know, and he was just, he's wimpy and he's got kind of a round face and he's not, he's the least likely actor you'd hire for a bowling figure, but he's strutting his way through this thing, trying to hiss through clenched teeth and be a badass. And it's just really <laughs> sad. It's just sad. And this movie's made for like $12 and, you know, Christopher George is the cop that is hunting him and slowly comes to respect him. And, you know, that's this, it's, it's like a Frankenstein monster of a vigilante movie that's stitched together from other more successful vigilante movies. And it was made for about $12 and somehow it became enough of a hit to spawn a sequel. And that kind of thing is kind of my low point. The guys who are just, who are cashing in, who don't, I mean, you can say a lot about Don Pendleton and his right wing worldview that gave us Mac Bolin, but he had a point of view I, and and these pulp guys that genuinely were bringing something personal to it and trying to do real stories, even if their view of the world is not mine, you can respect the authenticity of it. And um, the uh, the ones that are just cashing in, that are just playing to the worst impulses in people, that's my low point. For me... It's a, it's a thin line, yeah. and you can argue... Which is which, but I know the bad ones when I see them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My low point is is a phrase you used earlier: the misdirected fandom. It's the people that, like we talked about, the ability to see the difference between this is real life and this is a mm. story. This is a movie where a guy. This is like Taken. This is a movie that's over the top and crazy, and he does terrible things to bad guys. And this is a situation like Eric Garner getting choked out by the police. These are two different situations. My low point really is the people who can't tell that difference. The people who came up to Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons after Watchmen came out and who missed the point of Rorschach not being an aspirational character that we want to look up to, that he's not a role model, that he's someone that Mm. there are admirable things about him, but we ultimately pity him. That he's a broken Mm. person who eats out of people's garbage and scares people because he can't have a normal friendship or conversation. That he can't exist in a world like that. So when there's a scene where he has to ultimately make a compromise of some kind, he knows he has to just die. That he commits suicide by Dr. Manhattan because he can't live in a world that isn't this cartoon. And the fact that there's so many of these people that miss that, that say there ought to be more people like Rorschach in the world, that see things like Death Wish as a call to action, that you get those people like, again, the George Zimmermans, who don't understand that this is a cartoon, that it's not about those good people on on the wall trying to hold back the scumbags and the criminals, and that guys like that aren't really out there, at least not in the numbers that we have, that there's one Dahmer. There's a handful of guys that are really, really, really awful, but most people are just poor people who can't afford things, so they commit a horrible crime once, and it gets easier over time. It's not, it's, 
it's not a car. It, the inability to see this as a cartoon, that line between fantasy and reality, and those people who mm. just don't see that line at all and think that maybe the world could get fixed if there was a Paul Kiersey in the world, that's my low point. Hmm. Hmm. The one that always frightens me is the line when uh, when somebody in a in a movie that you know you've basically been told to respect over and over again, and uh, and I'm going to throw NCIS under the bus here for this, <laughs> but the fact that the character keeps saying I felt it in my gut, and I keep put every time I hear that I keep putting it back into like a 1950s con a context where it's like I felt in my gut that the 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 guilty guy was the black guy, yeah. You know, and it's just that that elevation of of gut feeling over like you know thought process or you know no, you're not supposed to feel things in your gut. You're supposed to feel things in your brain. You're supposed to examine the evidence and put the evidence together. And you know, you're not supposed to figure out what the result is before you get the 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 evidence in. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing I, I keep worrying about is that when George Zimmerman was driving around that neighborhood and spotted an unarmed black kid in a hoodie, was he playing out that fantasy in his head? Was he crossing that line and saying, no, I'm not going to question myself. I know it in my guts. Of course, I don't believe in them. They were just broken and a bunch of liberals are going to coddle this. And really what he saw is a black teenager moving through his neighborhood. And... Mm. The inability to see that difference. I mean, was he playing that out? And it's that part of it that occasionally, not often, but occasionally seeps into the back of my head and it spoils the fun, knowing that when Harry oh. Callahan is stepping on that leg, that bullet wound mm -hmm. in the first Dirty Harry movie, that there's a lot of cops that have that fantasy. A lot of cops oh. that are fucking scary. That's true. But the interesting thing about some of the best of this fiction is that they are aware of that as well yeah it's you keep bringing yep. up dirty harry it's interesting to me that the second dirty harry movie is about cops that take the law into their own hands and that's who harry mm. is opposed that's that's basically saying dirty harry being put in the position of saying no don't do what i do don't that's bad <laughs> yeah. this is a bad thing i need to stop this what have i you know, and um, there, there's uh, Mickey Spillane, like mm. literally, was like the template for a lot of this. You know, this time it's mm. personal punk. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and there's a bit in One Lonely Night where that book is very uncharacteristically Mike Hammer devoting a lot of that book to self-examination because it opens with him feeling really huge self-doubt and self-hatred because he's been hauled in front of a judge and the judge has basically said well i'll excuse you on a technicality this time mr hammer but we both know that you're a sadistic killer that just loves killing bad guys and <laughs> your gun is your favorite thing that you own and killing people just lights you up in a way that makes me sick inside <laughs> and this this is coming wow. from the author and yeah, and right. so hammers mm, right. the, the arc of the book is hammer wondering am i really a damaged person is there something wrong with me and then at the end of the book when he discovers his secretary that's been kidnapped and she's hanging stripped naked and being tormented by the villains he has this epiphany where it's like no i am evil <laughs> i am horrible i am the horrible that exists to combat the other horrible so that the good can live and with this epiphany and conscious clearing realization he tommy guns all of them to death on the spot yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> and oh, thank uh, christ i thought for a moment we learned something there. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's what's weird because i like the idea 
idea of that self-examination that suddenly he's the killer that the cop is the, the judge is letting off on a technicality. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I yeah. like that but the, yeah, it's like Sp- but never mind. No, <laughs> Spillane gets a bad rap. He's actually a very thoughtful writer a lot of the time. Max Collins made a great documentary about, you know, the the career of Mickey Spillane and there's a lot of great interview clips of him, you know, talking about why he structured his stories the way he did and the way the prose is built and it's most people don't think of Spillane as being a guy that brought a lot of craft to what he did Hmm. so I think it's time for us to pull ourselves out of the gutter out of the scum out of the filth (laughs) and uh, look at the high point of vigilante fiction what do we enjoy about this stuff Paul I want to open with you what is the high point of vigilantes my high point as far as the whole vigilante genre was my – I think my introduction to it. And this is going to be really personal. It's um, – every Christmas uh, I would spend – we would spend Christmas holidays at my grandfather's place. And he used to live on the – he used to live right on the coast near the beach. And his house was full of amazing old stuff. Um, you know, there were – there were knickknacks that he'd picked up in in foreign places. There were, you know, these amazing old records that I'd never heard before. And and so, you know, when you're a little kid and you're in this this house, uh, it was quite a you know fairly sizable house um, for an extended period of time, which I was. You just explore every inch of the damn place, and I happened across a whole bunch of these paperback books now I, I had no context for them and my first thought was pretty much that this was kind of like I, I had my head around the superhero thing but I knew there were things which were like superheroes but not and so um you know, because by that stage, I th- I'd encountered uh, the Avengers, the British TV series with Patrick McNee, and I'd I'd encountered you know other stuff like that, um, like Doctor Who, for example, which was it's kind of like a superhero but kind of not. Um, so I picked these up, and it was just absolutely fascinating to me because it was a whole new world. And the other thing about them was because I was a very, very young kid living in uh, Brisbane, Australia, and not really knowing anything of the world, you know, outside my immediate uh, experience, all of these places may as well have been uh, a fantasy land to me. Um, you know, when, when you talked about the mafia, I didn't know what the mafia was. Um, and, and so this was this new thing. And so as a result, you know, I was absolutely enraptured by these things. And I still get that feeling, the, the, the idea that these are things which are said in a fantasy world that is, you know, like ours, but not. And that's, that's kind of intoxicating to me. The idea that you can have something which is, uh, you know, as, as Greg was saying earlier, you know, it's, it's, it's dumb stuff that was sort of churned out. And yet, you know, it wasn't intended to be anything more than sort of read and, you know, read and forget 
something to read and forget while you're on the toilet or on the bus or whatever. But the fact that it created this entire world and this entire different universe where different rules apply and, and different characters exist is kind of interesting. The fact that decades later we can do this entire panel on this subject and um, you know, nostalgically look back on, on immersing ourselves in this world is, is kind of incredible, you know, given the fact that they were, you know, cheaply knocked out, repetitive, pulp trash for the most part. Casey? Um, I'm, I'm so happy. I'm, so <laughs> I'm so happy because we didn't, you didn't even touch this at all. It wasn't mentioned once. My high point, my high point is the crow, the crow, right? Oh. Which is, uh, which is, Not- it's a comic book vigilante movie because it had its genesis in comic book. And of course it has, it has, but it has all of the elements of a straight up vigilante movie. Um, it's the story of a goth rock star who, along with his wife, is killed by a gang of thugs on the, under the direction of a local crime boss. Um, but he's resurrected by a mysterious force to avenge his deaths. And he only has – he's invulnerable except for his, uh, his spirit guide crow companion. And, and uh, it's a basic revenge film. Um, but it's not a Batman style vigilante, right? Because he's gonna fucking kill these people. So it's a real, it, like, it's a real actual vigilante story. And there's darkness in his world, right? There's sadism. There's addiction, and there are real consequences to the evil and the crime that happens to the people that are uh, in this world. And the evil is winning. You know, the evil is clearly winning in this world. But the hero who's played by Brandon Lee, Bruce Lee's son, is going to have his revenge. Um, but along the way, he's going to help a teenage girl uh, uh, reunite with his her junky mom, and he's going to help the honest cops stay honest on a corrupt police force, and he's there to in- reintroduce hope into a world while still delivering this lethal justice. You know, it's, it has those two poles of it. And of course, I guess for me, the for the, the film the film nerd thing is that Brandon Lee died while filming this movie, and it's a there's a tragic serendipity of of, of a story about a dead man revived when this is us seeing a dead man live again, you know, when seeing his last movie. Um, and the support, the supporting cast is so fucking good in this movie after going back. So Ernie Hudson, who plays Winston in Ghostbusters, plays, oh, yeah. the, plays the cop. John Polito, uh, Tony Todd, and David Patrick Kelly. Warriors, come out to play! Is, is like... And he well he plays Sully in in Commando also, um, and then the the coup de grace is Michael Wincott who you probably don't know his name he is the picture fucking perfect villain he's a he's a beautiful vain man who clearly has evil beneath his eyes he's so evil in fact that this motherfucker he played Ed Gein in the Hitchcock biopic with uh, uh, that was done a couple of years ago with Helen Mirren and uh, Anthony Hopkins he played Ed fucking Gein he played Ed Gein. <laughs> Um, I, it's so, it's such, it, it is a flawed movie. I mean, it's not, it's not a, it's not an amazing superhero movie and it's just a, re- it's a simple revenge movie is what it is with some fantastic elements. But, um, the colorful villains that they paint like this weird fantasy 
uh, dilapidated urban setting that they create and that bittersweet experience of watching Brandon Lee's last appearance in film is what like is always compelling each time I watch it. And it's still sort of a satisfying sort of uh, catharsis when you get through the end of this story and seeing seeing the good prevail and the e- the evil fucked up guys have their uh, have their end in a bell tower. So but so that's for me. It's Crow is my high point. Greg, high point? Well, I have a lot of them, but really, if, I was uh, talking about this before. It's a pity that I can't show this to you because it's just come out in a beautiful new edition. My favorite vigilante in fiction is Richard Wentworth, the spider. Um, and most people don't know about the spider, but he was a contemporary of the shadow and Will Murray, who's a great pulp historian, had this this wonderful quote about the spider. He said, the good kids read about the shadow. The bad kids read about the spider. <laughs> the spider the spider is hardcore. He's the shadow turned up to 11. You know, the shadow wore a hat and cape and shot people. Um, the spider wore a hat, a cape, a fright wing, fangs. And he shot people, and then he took his special cigarette lighter, and he branded them on the forehead so that (laughs) there was just no doubt about who took these bastards down. Um, He lived in a a world where Manhattan was threatened with apocalyptic evil monthly. You know, he fought guys like the Cholera King and the the city destroyed. He was just... How can you ever be on the side of cholera? (laughs) I know. And and he's he's the textbook example of, you know, the spider is an example of a world so fucked up that the only response is to put on your hat, your cape, your fright wing, and your fangs and go out (laughs) and shoot up the streets. But here's the thing. The guy that wrote most of these was a man named Norvell Page, and he was he was an odd guy. He uh, he had a breakdown at one point because he was so viscerally intense about his writing. He just he had to take a break from it because <laughs> writing this stuff was just too hard on him. But in 1938, when Nazism was rising in in Europe and America was very isolationist, Page was very troubled by this. And he aimed his fevered, pulp-crazy imagination at the phenomenon of fascism. And he wrote what was called the Black Police Trilogy, which is about a fascist takeover of New York State. And it ran three issues, which is huge back in the day. They were always done in one. And they were novel-length stories. So he wrote like three novels over the course of three months, this giant arc in which the spider ends up leading a citizen revolution against the fascist cops that have taken over New York State. And it was very much a Nazi allegory. It's an amazing, amazing tour de force. And it's the the kind of thing you get when you, uh, you have a writer who feels really strongly about something and has the gift of sucking you into the entertaining part of it where... I won't go so far as to say Page has literary merit or literary craft, but he had that purity of purpose, and he really believed Hmm. in what he was doing, and he brought real craft to it. And those are just terrific books. I love The Spider, and I love The Black Police Trilogy best of all. You can't call it that now, obviously, um, but it has been marketed in a beautiful new trade paperback edition from a company called Age of Aces. It's called The Spider Versus the Empire State. 
<laughs> and it's a terrific book. That's my high point. Wow. So, I, think I think I'm going to steal it from you and kill you to get it because I want to read it so much. And then, because I've been inspired. Then I'll have to kill you <laughs> because justice. <laughs> <laughs> so for my high point, I had to come back to something that was a through line through all of these things. And that's the fucking villains in Vigilante Stories <laughs> because they are delightful cartoons. <laughs> um <laughs> The the one that I really keep coming back to is the Scorpio killer from the first Dirty Harry movie. And I had no idea that was Garrick, but it makes it even better now. Right. Because the Scorpio killer is bonkers. That everything that comes out of this man's mouth sounds like a cat call. <laughs> that he saunters around. He's kind of a little bit fidgety and manic, kind of like Crispin Glover in some ways. Yeah. And... There's these little moments where he's just, he holds that bus of children hostage and he's trying to get them to sing along with row, row, row your boat. And there's that one kid who's like, I want to go home. I want to go home. He's like, no, no, you got to sing row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. No, sing along. Sing along. He starts slapping the kid. Sing along. Row, row, row your boat. And then everything, again, it's that cat call sing song voice. You want to dance, pig? You want to go? Oh, no, 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 no. Don't pass on to me now, pig. We're going to play. And everything is such a cartoon. But that's the one emotion. The second emotion he has is when the tables are turned on him. Oh, yes. When he finally gets shot in the leg and he drops in that stadium and Harry Callahan walks up to him. And he's like, oh, come on, man. Come on. Don't kill me, man. Don't kill me. Don't kill me. I got rights, man. You're a cop. You're going to arrest me. Where's my lawyer? I need a doctor, man. I'm hurt. I'm hurt. I got rights. And he's just like, what about the rights of that little girl? And it's just, it's that moment where he just, he just breaks and suddenly the bully becomes the bullied. That turning point you talked about before. And I just love that these villains are just so delightfully cartoonish. There's, I mean, it's just weird little shit that takes you out of the reality of the moment. There's this bit, and again, getting back to my later, later obsession with nunchucks, <laughs> there's, there's this bit in Taxi Driver, and I almost did a little cheer in a normally realistic movie. Travis Bickle is walking down the streets and he locks eyes with this young gang and I hear a rattle and I'm like, is it? <laughs> Could it be? Is it? And I notice the guy had fucking nunchucks yes. in his hands and he just passes him in the street and they have that stare. But yeah, what I love about this is that, you know, it's just such a cartoon. It's such a, a departure from reality. Like Jeff Goldblum and his gang in Death Wish. That they right. saunter, they almost dance around the subway looking for people to pick on. It's like, da 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 yeah, da They're, they're kind of supernaturally motivated. They're just like, woo! Everything's yeah! a game. We're, just, <laughs> we're having fun! It's, as they say in that uh, Patton Oswald routine, we're having rape for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so bonkers. And you look at Jeff Goldblum and even his outfit is a little ridiculous. Ridiculous. And he really looks in that movie like a really fucked up version of Jughead Jones <laughs> with that with that little torn on fedora crown hat. And it just like, yeah, we're going to dance, huh? Woo! Yeah! And it just, they enjoy it a bit too much. Everything is a dance. Everything is a song until it's a squeal. And what I love about it is that that that. Oh, that little voice in the back of my head that tells me reality's not like this. People aren't like this. People like Harry Callahan are awful. This guy takes me out of reality. He brings me into a cartoon and said, no, 
It's okay to watch this motherfucker suffer because <laughs> he is a cartoon monster and he needs to pay. And that's what I love about vigilante films is it's a cartoon. It's not real. It's not something that you see on the news. It's a reality that is so over the top that you can't take it seriously. And the bad guy character, he is the conductor that makes that beautiful orchestra sing. <laughs> so that's my high point. And I guess that's our discussion on Vigilante Films. I want to thank our wonderful panel for joining us. Paul Rue from the wonderful, non-crime-ridden place of Australia. <laughs> I want to thank you for joining us, Paul. Always good to be back. And Greg Hatcher from Comic Book Resources, Comics Should Be Good blog, and Airship 27, Pulp Writer himself, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And finally, Mr. Casey Doran, please don't shoot me, man! Please don't! <laughs> It'll blow your head clean off. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to say thank you folks for joining us. We'll be back in a couple months. But until then, it's payback time. <laughs> <laughs> Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Say something. You may. You know those, uh, those people, the ones that put down the people I killed. I want you to know that I do it all again. This is a circus, all right? It's a charade. It's an act. It's bullshit about how Language. crazy I am. I ain't crazy. I'm not crazy. Okay? I know what I did. I know who I am, and I do not need your help. I'm smack dab in the middle of my right goddamn mind, and any scumbag, any, any lowlife, any maggot piece of shit that I put down, I did it because I liked Order. it. Hell, I loved it. I said, I'm, I'm just itching. I'm, 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 I'm itching to do it again. And you think what? You think you're gonna send me to a nut house? Some doctor, they're gonna get me to stop from doing what I wanna do? Well, that ain't happening! Not on my watch! You people, you call me the Punisher, ain't that right? The big bad Punisher. Here I am! You want it? Remove the witness. I am the Punisher! I'm right here! You want it? I'll give it to you! And anybody who came here today, hear me wine, hear me beg, hear me kiss my ass! Do you hear me? I'm guilty! My plea, Judge! I'm guilty, you hear me? I'm guilty! I'm guilty! I'll kill every one of them! I'll kill every single one!